Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live for another epic debate in the 2022 Evolution Debate Challenge Series. Tonight we've got Runa Norderhog and Dr. Dino debating, is there reasonable evidence for evolution? Evolution tonight is on trial. Runa, this is your first time here on the platform, and I do appreciate you uh, being willing to engage in, in this important discussion and topic. So Runa, I want to start with you in terms of, of an introduction, uh, not necessarily an opening statement, just a little bit about you, a little bit about uh, if you've got a website or a channel, anything like that. Uh, go ahead. No, no, I am just a regular biology student as well as just someone also oh um just interested in technology and as well as so social and behavioral studies and just someone who loves learning in a variety of ways both about the sciences in general and and a large amount of other to topics and to be honest i also love discussing them so and and always interested in asking questions and, and thinking about the answers, which is also why I'm here. Yeah, because obviously I've also asked a lot of questions on your channel. <laughs> well, that's why uh, I'm excited for this. I'm sure you and uh, Kent are going to have some interesting dialogue. So let's hand it over to uh, Dr. Dino. Dr. Dino, you've been a busy man. You've got a ton of these uh, important debates here in this uh, challenge series. So how you been? How's your day? And how's everything at Dow, brother? Uh, God's been good. Some of God's kids drive me crazy, but God is good. Uh, Dinosaur Adventureland in Lenox, Alabama is going great. We give tours all the time. I found something interesting today, Donnie. I found an old slide. I, my debate number 230 was back in April of 2021. I have now, because of your channel, done so many more. Tonight is a blessing to do uh, Runa. Thank you for doing this. Number 286 for me. I've done 56 debates in the last 58 weeks. <laughs> Bring them on. Bring them on. Okay. The, somebody called me the Hulk Hogan of the Hulk Hogan of the creationists, uh, the evolution destroyer. <laughs> anyway, I got three next month. Uh, the, uh, thank you, uh, Donnie, for doing this. Even Latheist Jr. are going to try it again. Praise God. So looking forward to that. I believe the Bible is true. Evolution is the dumbest and most dangerous religion in the history of the world. Didn't happen. Not dumb. <laughs> Appreciate the intro. Kent, that's got to be a world record, and we'll have you over 300 debates in no time. So uh, for the audience sake, though, I want to uh, give them a little bit of a rundown in terms of the format. It's going to be very similar to the last several debates where we are going to be taking one topic at a time. Uh, Rune being the affirmative, he is going to start us off with uh, 
a an opening statement where he's going to kind of lay out a single argument with some slides and then we're going to go from there one topic at a time and and some sophisticated dialogue so we will be having an audience q a though so everybody in the audience please if you've got a question pertaining to creation versus evolution make sure you're tagging me at standing for truth and that way i don't miss them okay room uh, we're going to hand it over to you whatever you take opening statement we'll give to kent and i do see your slides popping up so yeah there we go you know the opening questions are the real hell uh, so i'll happy when you get to that part but you know for now let's have a discussion so oh you know i have the most boring opening slide but let's go <laughs> to the next one so Though it is often understood from a, the, like, in the current, like, scientific worldview, we often, people often think that, you know, people often misunderstand that it was like everything came out in a instant and that that's what we mean, that it all came out of nowhere in an instant. But while there, there is talk about nothing in the beginning, though that is under a distinct category, right? we, when we are often actually talking about large amounts of processes over time that eventually got us here, not everything popping into existence. The, these processes include the stellar formation hints that that it got us here, here. Different stars are originally forming from hydrogen and helium, and then the metal, and, and those stars themselves, elves, because they formed a, a, a specific amount and near each other, are actually sharing metal and then, then being able to increase the higher levels. Eventually, biological evolution is itself one of those, those, those processes. Well, different forms of like abiogenesis are posited. The only requirement for evolution is basically that different forms of these processes could have happened, not specifically a, a one form from happening. And there needs to be an access to zones. So many creationists will put these processes other, under the categories of stellar evolution, chemical evolution, cosmological evolution, biological evolution, as I believe Kent is going to do today. Though you can fairly argue there are a form of change and process that is advocated for by modern science and definitely are interrelated with each other, they're in fact not a required premise in each other's basis as they can be supplemented with each other. They do have to defend themselves, but they do not rely on each other. Just like knowing the origin of the stream Moses was put in could be used for or against his story in the Bible, we can still explore or evidence around that story without knowing the origins of that specific stream. So now let me go on to talk about one of my first topics, diatoms. Where did all the diatoms go during the flood? Diatoms are a group of multiple genera of single-celled 
SR clade protists that are organisms with cell walls composed of transparent silicae. When we consider that these species would not have been on ARC due to not having the breath of life, yet should be expected to be one of the original existing kinds due to their inability to reproduce with other forms of protists, thus carving out what seems to be the closest form of a kind category, we can at least guess that they were, er, 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 that a form of them uh, must have gone back. As a result, assuming that, as Ken Hoven often asserts with his, his shake em up uh, density model, we have to ask the question, considering that they were in the sea and they must have died, died as a result of the violent turbulence that occurred during this thing, why don't we see a, a large amount of diamaceous earth when there would be a distinct amount out of density of it separated under the way Kenthoven pre presents it. If they were moved, moved by some other mechanism, what mechanisms would allow both that model and the, the young earth model to coexist as well if instead they came out after the flood existed as a result of the supposed post-flood diversity increase, why isn't there a noticeable shift in the amount of silica present in layering past that specific point versus before? As, and why isn't there a more noticeable spread of that diomaceous earth, earth around? Another topic to continue, or Donnie, would you like would you prefer that I introduce this later? That's a very good question. Uh, what I'm seeing here is arguments from uh, diatoms. So maybe we'll we'll stop there. We'll allow yeah, uh, can... Ken equal time maybe to address it. You guys can um, go back and forth on it, and then we'll pull up your slides again for uh, your That's next fair. line of evidence for evolution. So uh, let me just get that. Good. We're good. Dr. Hoven, we're going to hand it over to you um, to take equal time. It looked like it was about four minutes or so and kind of go from there. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. I've never had diatoms used as an ev evidence for evolution. I think uh, most people would agree that diatoms live in the ocean and they would not need to go on Noah's Ark. They had plenty of water outside. On my seminar part six, I'm flashing through my slides quickly here to see if I find I've been to the diatomaceous earth quarry in uh, Lompoc, California. I have some huge uh, sections of diatomaceous earth here in our museum. Uh, it is made up of bazillions and trillions and quadrillions of diatoms. They probably died rapidly with the uh, uh, temperature change in Noah's flood. Let's see, diatomaceous earth. Uh, you have to, oh, here it is. Chalk cliffs of Dover as an example. There we go. Finally, found it. Okay, slide number 268, uh, alt DV. Two, six, eight. There. Uh, a fossil whale was found standing on end uh, and running through all these layers of diatomaceous earth. 
Diatomaceous earth, here's, here I am at the Lompoc, California, uh, diatomaceous earth quarry. When you split these layers of diatoms open, they contain billions of fish fossils packed in between the layers. I think it's pretty obvious the diatomaceous earth was formed by a rapid die-off of diatoms, like trillions and quadrillions of them, probably from a great temperature change. But the diatomaceous earth contains literally trillions, quadrillions of fossils, huge fish found in the diatomaceous earth. Damien, do we still have these in our science center? At least one, yeah, things kind of disappear. But I think that's an awfully poor argument for evolution. The diatoms haven't changed. The chalk cliffs of Dover, same thing, they're 300 feet thick. Something, a rapid temperature change would have caused a massive die-off of the chalk and the diatoms, and these creatures would have snowed to the bottom of Noah's flood. Um, calcite, another one, the white cliffs of Dover. So I think the Bible is, is correct that certainly the existence of diatoms in great layers is not evidence for evolution. The purpose of the debate tonight is where's the evidence for evolution? When they look at diatoms today swimming around in the ocean, they're identical to the ones they find in the fossil record. There's been no change. They're still the same. But how do you get a layer 300 feet thick of diatoms? It's not happening anywhere in the world today. And you split them open and there's fossils inside, bunches of them. So I think if that's uh, uh, Runa's best evidence for evolution, that's, that's evidence actually for a flood, a rapid die-off of creatures. And I think if God created the world to be inhabited, like he said in Genesis, the purpose of it being made was to be inhabited. I think the world was entirely habitable, whereas today large portions of it are basically uninhabitable. Um, and so I think it was a very different world before the flood and the uh, uh, crust of the earth breaking open. The Bible says the fountains of the deep broke open. The hot water coming out would have killed all the diatoms within 100 miles of the crack. And the diatomaceous earth quarry in Lompoc, California is right on the San Andreas Fault. I think that's one of the places where they died off and made huge layers. So I, there's been no change in the diatom, so it's not evidence for evolution. The ones we find fossilized and the ones today are identical. It's actually a great evidence for a flood. So I'm not exactly sure what he's driving at here, how this is somehow evidence for evolution. It, it's rapid die off. I mean, you go out there, just Google uh, Diatomaceous Earth Quarry, Lompoc, California. They dig it out with monster machines. Truck train loads of it go out of there every day, train loads. So not evidence for evolution. Uh, let's see, he also asked about, um, oh, he's a biology student. I appreciate that. Keep studying, you can become a creationist. Uh, you love learning? Good, good. We'll, we'll use you on our side when we get you converted over, uh, Runa. Uh, okay, I think those are the only two things he covered. I'd like to see more evidence for evolution, uh, if he's got some. Go ahead. Appreciate oh, yeah. it. Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead, no, Brett, Bruno, if, if there's anything you wanted to. It's, um, it's, I, I do. I do want, but it's your show. No, yeah, if, if you wanted to uh, have a quick response, you guys can go uh, you, back and forth on that slightly, and then we'll have you present okay. another what, line of evidence for, for evolution. Go ahead. What you said is actually the crux of my point. There is huge layers of it in the in court quarries, but they're specifically in quarries, in locations that are specific, rather than spread out all over the earth. earth. That implies that there was some mechanism to push these things over, rather than what we'd expect in a global flood, where all of it should be 
dying everywhere, especially in as the model you have proposed and shown with your sand-based thing multiple times um, shows, it should be weight-based. You, you have often suggested that it is that different fossils based on their weight go up and went up and down um, during the flood. If that was to occur, we should expect much more of a distribution in, of diatoms much more evenly than we actually see it in reality. So if, the, if we assume that is true, then there must have been, and that the flood occurred, there must have been another mechanism after the flood to who distribute those diatoms towards those specific quarries from the even distribution and that occurred during the flood. Uh, and then the question and comes up. Up. If Unless this you wanted to stop there, Runa, and allow, because the, there's a few things you said there. We'll allow this, uh, I guess, topic to be discussed briefly, but I do also want to make sure that, that we're sticking to uh, the main topic, which is evolution, right? Evidence for evolution. Um, and, and I appreciate those points. Uh, Kent, if there's anything you wanted to respond there, go ahead. Well, yeah, the, the purpose of the debate is evidence for evolution, not evidence against the flood. I, I don't have to defend that. The Bible says there was a flood. I believe that. I've chosen to believe it. But I think if you go any place where there's been a flood, go, go to Louisiana after a big hurricane. <clears throat> Things are sorted out. There are trees and logs and leaves and sand dunes and mud. It, the, the moving water separates things very quickly. I've often said in my seminar, when I use the little uh, sand things here, I can flip it over and make 10 or 20 layers in a matter of minutes, okay? It does not take millions of years. Uh, I think the fossils, if there's any sorting at all, the fossils we find are sorted based upon habitat. Clams are at the bottom, generally, because clams already live at the bottom. That's where they live. Of course, they're the first ones buried. Birds are at the top, generally, because birds are the last ones to drown in a flood. So I think you'd have to consider, if we're arguing flood geology here, the habitat would determine some sorting. You're probably not going to find birds with clams very often because birds don't hang out with clams. They don't, they don't hang out with them. Okay. Secondly, I think there are going to be some sorting based upon body density. Clam shells are heavier than bird feathers. I think they're going to be sorted based upon mobility. Clams can't run very fast. A bird can fly pretty fast. And they're sorted based upon intelligence. As best anybody can figure out, clams aren't too smart. So I think those are some of the factors that would have played into the sorting of the fossils in these layers. Plus, when water is moving, it automatically sorts things. It's called hydrologic sorting. And when water is moving sideways, like you would get with the flood of Noah, if the moon is pulling the tides up during the flood, which it certainly was, the moon pulling the, pulling the tide up means the water has to rush into that bump to stay under the moon, all the while the earth is turning. So the water is constantly moving sideways at the same speed the earth is turning to stay under that bump. Not all of the water, but the bump would go up 200 feet with a, a, a tidal change during a liquid-covered earth, harmonic tide. So moving water will make eight or ten layers at the same time. Type in um, hydrologic or no, experiments in stratification. The Colorado tank that they did, the French guy did all the experiments in. He said, look, you can get a fossil up here that's actually older than one down here. This one can be deposited before this one gets deposited. But the evolutionists are stuck with this dumb idea that the layers of the earth are different ages. 
they're stuck with it. They, got, they try to fit everything into that stupid paradigm. No, the layers are not different ages. I made these in the last three minutes. Is the top layer younger? No, they're all in the thing at the same time. If they say the top layer is younger, where's it coming from? Outer space? That's why I say the geologic column does not exist anywhere in the world. It's the biggest lie taught to humanity, and some folks swallow it, and they try to force everything to fit in that stupid geologic column, and it doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as a geologic column. So <clears throat> anyway, but this is not about the flood. I think I could defend the flood in a debate, but I'd still like to see how that is evidence for evolution, that we came from an amoeba or a single-celled creature, or that life could get started from non-living material, organic evolution, or pick, pick whichever one you want, uh, Runa. Which, where's the evidence for evolution? You're teaching about taking a biology class. What are they telling you? Why do you why do you, why do they make you believe this? Let's say biology generally talks more about more round evolution, actually, honestly, than you often present it um, personally. But actually, part of why I talked about that previous topic was its relevance to aging. But I'll be fair to and respect Donnie, and let's go on to the next topic, which is Curie. Um, so, in the I got 1950s, your slides up, by the way, Runa. I got your slides up now. Yeah. In the 1950s, in the Flory region, in a fatal, there was a fatal neurodegenerative disease found that would become known as Curie or laughing sickness, and it was first officially described by uh, the Australian officers there. Though naturally, like every disease, it had been known about. Uh, slightly before then by the locals of Papua New Guinea. By the local tribesmen, it was initially thought to be sorcery or witchcraft sp spread by some members of the tribe and by those primarily and, and was primarily affecting the children and women of the tribe. Even when this came out, out and they looked into it, even amongst biologists, there was a heavy debate on the cause of this neurological, oh, oh, um, I mean, neurodegenerative disease because there was such a prolonged waiting period in the disease itself between when they got, when they appeared to get it and when the people got affected. And, and the cause was initially described as the, I mean, the cause was eventually discovered to be what would become known as a prion, which is a misfolded protein. And it turned out that these proteins were being spread from brain to brain by the ritual ha habits of this people group. We confirm this by actually um, getting some prions from someone who was infected and spreading it to an orangutan. And it turned out, out, out that the prions were also likely the cause of diseases such as Crutchfield-Jacobs disease and similar diseases that had changed from its initial form and spread from the initial victim uh, but the story of Curie doesn't end there. Within the region that Curie appeared, a missense mutation started spreading, known as G1, now known as G127 um, polymorphism. These types of mutations are point mutations 
wherein the amino acids switch in a single nucleotide and sometimes result in the protein being non-functional, leading to specific diseases sometimes or potentially leading to beneficial effects depending on the environment and its interaction. This case, it enabled a specific increased resistance to curing because it resulted in a specific prion protein. It appears to be as recent as only 10 generations, and it was specifically limited to the region where Curie had been most widespread and was only seen in about 3,000 individuals, but quickly spread. And this kind of brings up a lot of interesting in questions about both creationism and evolution. Why can prions transfer from what could be considered different kinds, yet only within kinds that are closely related, such as orangutans and humans? Since that appears to actually indicate evidence of a close relationship, as well, why uh, can something be end up being misfolded just by interacting with different misfoldings? And how did it, it start a chain of misfoldings in the first place? And finally, considering that there are that this appears to be a beneficial mutation. Is, and also was from a duplication error. Does this not show that there are times when new information can be added, added and a benefit can come from it? Okay, Runa, if, if that's mm -hmm. it for that uh, specific argument. Um... I guess the yeah. bigger picture, beneficial uh, mutations, and specifically this example. Let me get your uh, slide off the screen. And uh, Kent, brother, we can hand it over to you for, for a response. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, mutations are often cited as evidence for evolution. All of the known mutations are harmful, fatal, or neutral. In this case, it didn't add any new information. It selected, well, I'll get into that in a second. Textbooks often mm -hmm. say, Mutations are the raw material of evolution, okay? Mutations are essential to evolution. They are the raw material of genetic variation. Without mutation, evolution could not occur. I agree, and it can't occur. Evolution doesn't happen. Mutations have a range of effects. They can often be harmful. Others have little or no detrimental effects. Sometimes, although very rarely, the change in DNA sequence may even turn out to be beneficial. In this case, his whole, last, his whole last speech he gave was about a deadly disease, laughing sickness, that some mutation prevented them from getting that deadly disease. Well, that's like, well, bacteria don't become resistant to drugs. Uh, only deformed, misshapen bacteria do. But it involves an information loss. I've got plenty of that from Dr. Spetner, who taught at that John Hopkins University about bacteria. Uh, let's see. He said... Uh, after all the reading I've done in the life sciences, I've never found a mutation that added information. All point mutations studied by the molecular level are not to reduce genetic information, not increase it. Bacteria antibiotic streptomycin attaches to part of the bacterial cell called ribosomes. 
mutations sometimes cause a structural deformity, like you talk about the folded protein here. It's a deformity. Since the antibiotic cannot connect with the misshapen ribosome, the bacterium is resistant. Even though the mutation turns out to be beneficial for the moment, it still constitutes a loss of information, not a gain. No evolution has taken place. The bacteria are not stronger. His argument that he just gave would be similar to saying, uh, if the police are going through handcuffing everybody to haul them off to prison and somebody doesn't have any arms, oh, he can't be handcuffed. Is that beneficial? No, it's beneficial for the moment. He gets away from getting handcuffed, but it's still, it's not, it's a loss of information. So the misshapen folded protein he's talking about is not going to help turn the bacterium into an elephant or a whale or a human. In that, if that's the best evidence they've got for evolution, they're bad shape. There's no evidence. I've been saying for years, there's no evidence of any animal ever producing a different kind of animal. And let's see, I got more stuff on mutations here somewhere, but I'll rest my case on that one. Uh, he mentioned uh, they can be transferred to apes, therefore we must be closely related. Well, the fact that certain diseases can affect certain creatures, different uh, phyla or, or um, different uh, families or genus or species, that doesn't prove any relationship. It might prove the same designer. It uh, doesn't have to prove, in, their, in the evolutionist mind though, the only answer is we gotta be related. Well, maybe we got the same designer. The Fords in our driveway and the Chevys both have four tires. It's a good design, it works, okay? So I think uh, if that's the best evidence for evolution, you don't have any at all. Go ahead. Okay, appreciate it, uh, Kent, that response. I'm really enjoying this uh, one topic uh, at a time. So Runa, oh, I'm gonna unmute you, uh, my good man. Uh, go ahead with your response. Also, that will bring me to what he last said will bring me to my last slide. Um, but actually, I wanna point out something. You, you misheard me and you know, I'll fully take that on me. It was, it was the disease that caused the misfolding thing. thing. The neuro, it was Curie that caused uh, the misfolding and the prion suspect. The mutation was actually what correct, corrected the misfolding. Thing. And that is what is interesting about it. In combination with that it was localized to a specific region and, and where this disease was spreading. Thing. It would, you are definitely kind of correct if it had just been a like misforming thing of it. it. Though we can definitely make some evolutionary arguments for what is a misformation and what can be beneficial in different circumstances. But it was actually the mutation was correcting the misformation. And that is what is really amazing, especially with how localized the mutation was towards the disease itself. But in relation to your what you said at the end, let me bring up my last slide. Uh, how do we recognize design? Actually, Runa, mm -hmm. um, maybe we should let Ken okay. respond okay. to anything there that he'd like to, and then we'll jump right to your next slide, and then that'll, that, that way we'll keep it going at, at a nice flow like this. Um, Kent, over to you. Uh, I'd have to do some study on what he said about the, the mutation was correcting the misfolding. So if it was designed perfectly and it was misshapen from a mutation and another mutation straightened no. it out, no, it I, was, I'm baffled. It was designed right to begin with. 
Go ahead. So basically prions, like Krich Jacobs basically mutated to, to work with humans and then it spread and caused a chain of misfoldings because people were eating in, um, brains and, and spreading it that way. And then it was infecting their own brains. So it was basically a chain of prions and infecting other people's holes, prions, and then they were infecting other people's prions, but, and causing it to misfold old. The, pro, the proteins themselves misfolded as a result of coming into contact with other misfolded proteins. And that led to the neurodegenerative disease. And it's a specific type, and it's actually a specific type of category of neuro of disease that we now know exists as a result of this, where misfolded proteins are the cause rather than a virus, yes, or something else. Well, I guess I'm still failing to understand how that adds information that would change it to anything the, else. Are, the mutation, are they still apes? Are they still humans? The mutation, the mutation itself was highly localized and actually repairing it. It didn't change them into a specific species, but it definitely suggests highly localized as adaption can happen and is still occurring in the modern day. It didn't stop. It also suggests that we don't have like a backlog of genetic things that has suddenly stopped and that all DNA isn't just negative. And do you think that example you gave is enough of uh, enough to make people believe that a, a protozoa can turn to a human over billions of years? Uh, a mutation that straightens out or corrects a previous mistake, you're thinking that's adding information. You realize how many how much information has to be added to change from a protozoa to a biology teacher? These trees of life are taught in the schools. I'm sure it's in your textbooks. I, I, the purpose of this whole series of debates is where's the evidence? Why should somebody believe this? And if your best evidence is the prions, I'll do more research on that and be ready next time. But uh, I, I don't see how you've added any information. You straightened out something that was wrong. You didn't add anything. He's muted. You're good now, Runa. Okay. No, that is fair. This is definitely only one step in, in a process. But it definitely shows how it is not just a process that exists in the past that is historical, but it is something that is ongoing. Though we only, though just like life is an ongoing process and often we forget about it, it is something that is still shifting us over time and changing and diversifying as well. There are other things that I could get into that I see some of the great questions that I'd like to talk about uh, later.
Yeah. I'm not seeing any of the questions, but so far, if I understand this, uh, all you've offered as evidence for evolution is uh, a mutation that corrected a previous bad mutation and straightened out a protein because people were eating brains. Uh, dumb idea to begin with. But, uh, and so it, it happened to go from species to species that look similar, like uh, apes or orangutans. I forget which one you said. I, I don't see how that's going to change uh, an amoeba to a biology teacher, which is what my objection is. Why do they teach this stuff? This is fairy tale. This is not science. It's a fairy tale. Whole thing, whole chart. And, and Runa, I'll, I'll just jump in real quick. So what we can now do is shift to um, what you would believe is, is an additional line of evidence that would, I guess, corroborate, as, as you were saying, uh, this specific example. If you have a slide or uh, however you'd like to present the next argument. Well, along with different mutations, I know you guys have heard about Darwin's finches since you complain you know, about them so much. And, you know, that's fa fair. But are you aware that, in fact, there are more Darwin's finches now than there were in Darwin's time? In fact, there, there have been hybridization events since that, that period. And I actually think this brings up a question that Kent Hoven has asked himself. Of where does the line... And, and what does it mean to be a species or a kind? And is that uh, relevant or is that something that we create ourselves and apply? Uh, so I actually want to ask you a question. If, a, if we added enough mutations and completely changed a kind, even if it originated from the 40 different kinds, would it still be the same kind? And, and it's not about the kind. Uh, and I fully agree that Kent Hovind is right. It doesn't matter what we call a kind. And I think some of my spouses definitely do focus uh, over a bit too much about that. It's much more about where does it end? If I complete, if a finch can completely change into with so many mutations that it looks completely different than what we began with. Is it still a finch? We could call it that, of course, of course, but does it matter to God? God, God wouldn't care if it was a finch. It would just be a creation in that that lied and was diversely different. Okay, go ahead, Ken. Okay, uh, Darwin sailed around 1831 on a ship for five years. He couldn't get a regular job. His dad got him a job as the ship's captain's companion because uh, he was kind of a loser type fella, I, in my humble opinion. But he stopped at these islands off the coast of South America, the Galapagos Islands, and there he noticed there were 14 varieties of finches. And uh, Runa may be correct. There may be more varieties now because we've decided to further subdivide them. The Grants went down there and spent 10 years studying the size of the beak of the finch. And they found out during dry years, when there's not much rain, the beak of the finch is one-tenth of one millimeter. A tenth of a millimeter thicker. Okay. That's because during dry years, the bugs have harder shells and they're harder to crack. 
So the beaks of the finch either grew a little thicker, like my fingernails grow thicker when I work on things, uh, or they, 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 they died off if they didn't have a, a, a thick beak. The grant spent 10 years down there, probably got a doctor's degree for it or something like that. So there are quite a few varieties of finches, 228 species of finches in the world. Darwin counted 14 on the Galapagos Islands. They're still a bird, 100% bird. And his book, Origin of Species, he saw the finches on the island. He said, wow, there's 14 kinds of finches. Good observation, Charlie. So he said in his book, it's a wonderful fact that all animals and all plants are related to each other. Wait, wait, wait. You see 14 kinds of finches and therefore mosquitoes are related to pine trees? That's what he said. I didn't make it up. What he observed is called microevolution variations of the finch. And maybe they've varied, varied more. They're probably making new varieties of dogs, but they're still a dog. That's not evidence for evolution. Uh, where does it end? I think, uh, Runa, we could say the animals determine where it ends. Uh, they, they simply can't reproduce anymore. They've been trying to get smaller and smaller dogs. They got them down to toy chihuahuas, completely useless, but they got toy chihuahuas. I would be willing to bet $5 there's a limit to the size of a dog. I don't think you're going to get a dog, a dog as small as a flea. But there are animals as small as a flea, called a flea. So there are, I don't think they're going to get a dog as big as a whale or an elephant. So I think we're seeing the limits already. There's limits to horse speed, racing horses. They spent billions of dollars trying to go faster and faster, and they're probably getting close to a limit. So if, if somebody breaks the record, it'll be by a few millionths of a second. Okay. So I think the animals themselves are limited. They, in, in the wild, the chihuahuas wouldn't last. Wouldn't last five minutes. So I think what we're seeing is variations within the kind, which God said would happen. They bring forth after their kind. There are no examples in recorded history of any animal ever bringing forth something other than its kind. Every farmer in the world counts on crossbreeding cows and getting a cow. It happens every time. So what Darwin observed, if somebody now has decided to further subdivide them into more varieties of finches, it's still a bird. Bird. This is not evolution. Bird. Go ahead. Kent, appreciate it. Runa, we are going to hand it uh, back to you. And, and Runa, I just want to let you know if there's any uh, time you want to share slides or anything, just let me know and I can get them up there for you. But what is a bird? Did we define it or did nature or God define what a bird is? Because as you have pointed out, what we call it shouldn't matter. So we, it should be intrinsic where that limit ends. Not, we shouldn't see, we shouldn't be unable to distinguish between where like a dinosaur and a bird is. is. We, at least if there is such cut and dry kind. In addition, and I have to point this out in favor of chihuahuas, chihuahuas are actually much older than other species of dogs. Contrary to what you said, though chi two toy chihuahuas are older and were originally bred for being eaten. Uh, but you do bring up an interesting question. But an, an answer is, is, consider this, is I would agree there is a limit, but is that limit one that is genetic or is it one 
that is physical due to the laws of our nature. For example, dinosaurs were able to grow to large size and fleas are able to get small. But this is due to, this appears to be due to, from an evolutionary perspective, how their physiology has adapted to their environment. So, like dinosaurs often have lower bones. So, maybe it would much more be relevant if we wanted to create a dog in that direction to, to have to account for all, not just some, but all the physical features that would, would be going in action rather than the genetical well, features that is the blocker. Go ahead, Kat. Well, his, his question was, are the limits to the changes genetic or physical? Probably both. I think we've reached a limit with dogs. Uh, there are physical limits. Uh, you're not going to get much bigger. Their bone structure couldn't handle. I don't think the bone structure of a dog could handle the weight of an elephant, for example. Uh, and they're certainly limited by genetics. God said 20 times in the first seven chapters, 20 times, they're going to bring forth after their kind. Every farmer in the world will tell you that's all they've ever seen. You plant corn, you get corn. There are now 250 breeds of cows they've developed. Probably had a common ancestor called a cow. Um, 60 varieties of oak trees might have had a common ancestor called an oak tree. All we've ever seen are the variations are limited genetically. You can crossbreed your finches for the next thousand years. Okay, what? Runa, get your biology class where you're teaching, where you're working, to take the finch gene code and turn it into a reptile or a mosquito or a whale, anything else. I'd be willing to bet you five bucks you will always, always get a bird when you crossbreed your finches. You may get some new variety if you work at it. You might get some that can't fly. You're never going to get anything that's got fins and scales. And yet you guys believe, the evolutionists believe at least, that reptiles, dinosaurs, turned into birds. One of the dumbest ideas in the history of humanity has got to be that one. Maybe electing Obama was dumber, but uh, so, or Biden, gee uh, So I think uh, th there's a limit genetically and a limit physically. You're never going to get a bird as big as an elephant. It's not going to happen. Go ahead. Appreciate it, Kent. Runa? I'm guessing then that you are unaware that we have, in fact, actually in the fetal womb, womb by, as crazy it is, one of the advisors for Dinosaur or Park Arc, um, actually been able to, in fetal womb, turn, turn a, a bird, a, a chicken, back into more dinosaur or like structures. And in fact, it was surprisingly easy. At the same time, um, um, something you said is not necessarily correct with the reproductive, as algae often are, to some extent, polyploidal oh, and do actually interact outside uh, of what is their natural oh, groupings. And then they, the weird other ones, they form almost natural ring species in a way that is distinct from how other species interact 
sexually. And I'm not talking about the ring species most, most uses as evidence that form out, out as a result of the A to B to C to D to E to F to A to F patterns. I'm, I'm talking about algae's mating in, in patterns in that they can mate with, with A to C to C to A, A, but they cannot always mate directly in the middle, making this weird formation of polypoidal transfer of information directly. So that was just a fun point. And I wanted to go to my slide, my final slide, if I may, Donnie. Yeah, Runa, let's do this. Let's allow uh, Ken to have a quick final okay. response on that specific topic, and then we'll pull up your slides and we'll move on to the next one. So oh, my uh, final ahead, slide. Okay, that's fair. Uh, just one point though, my final slide is is just related to what Ken said earlier. So I don't okay. think it will be a problem for him. Okay, go ahead, Ken. Okay, he is correct. There is such a phenomena as ring species. Uh, I think you'll find the Kayabab squirrels and the Abert squirrels around Grand Canyon. Uh, do not seem to be inter interbreeding. Whether they could or not, I don't know. But the varieties that are always developed, in that case, they're still a squirrel. All the ring species that can ever be brought up, for example, are still the same kind of animal. There are 50 varieties of watermelons. The Bible says they bring forth after their kind. And over nearly a thousand varieties of mangoes. And they always make mangoes every time. 2,500 varieties of apples just in the US, 7,500 worldwide. And they're still an apple without question. How many kinds of wasps? 17,000 species of wasps. Well, 3,000 varieties of tomatoes. The worldwide, there are 15,000 varieties of tomatoes. God said they'd bring forth after their kind. A thousand types of bananas bring forth after their kind. But you guys want to put them on a chart and draw lines and say, see, animals and fungi and plants are related. Stop. I think all the bananas might be related. I think all the apples might be related. I think all the elephants might be related, but they're not related elephants and bananas to each other. This is science up here, the four different kinds of elephants. This is religion back here. There are 1,100 varieties of bats. They're still bringing forth after their kind. So all, all observable science, which is science is supposed to be what we can observe, study, test, and demonstrate, all of it says evolution doesn't happen you might get a variety of cat, but they're still a cat. You're never gonna turn a cat into something else. And to turn an ostrich into a dinosaur, I wanna see that. And to turn a chicken, uh, chicken turning toward dinosaur characteristics or whatever it was you said, I'll go back and review the tape. I wanna see that evidence. And if somebody can do it in the laboratory, does that prove it happened in nature? Does that prove it happened in history? No, nobody has ever observed any animal produce a different kind of offspring. Oak trees make baby oak trees without exception, 60 different kinds. Okay, 195 varieties of chickens, eight kinds of bears. I accept all this. It's still the same kind. So yes, variations happen, 45 varieties of pumpkins. And probably some farmer can say, I want a pumpkin that's you know pink and he could work with the gene code and mess it up and make a pink pumpkin, I don't know. But it's still a pumpkin, 1100 species of pine trees. 12,000 species of grass, 150 species of uh, roses, hybrids, 60 species of rats, 
So I think all of observable science deals with the fact that animals bring forth after their kind, which is what God said would happen. So if somebody's messing with it in the laboratory, trying to turn an ostrich in, or a, would you say a, a bird and a chicken into a dinosaur or give it reptile characteristics, hey, I'd like to see the evidence. I'd like to see how they did that. And is this proof it happened in nature? Is it therefore something we should teach to all the students as fact? No. It's nothing more than hypothesis at this point until it's a proven fact. Science deals with what we can observe, study, test, and demonstrate. Look it up. We don't observe any animal make any other kind of babies than the same kind. 60 species of eagles. Might have had a common ancestor called an eagle. So I do want to see his last slide and see what he's got to say. And about the ring species, it's still the same kind. Anybody would recognize the Kaibab squirrel and the uh, Abert squirrel, the ring species around Grand Canyon, as a squirrel. Anybody, a four-year-old would do that. Go ahead. Appreciate it. Uh, Kent, Runa, let's let's move on to your uh, next slide. I appreciate the visuals from the both of you. And uh, as we wind down here, oh. I think on, on probably our final topic to the audience, we've got a ton of great questions flying in. So any last minute questions, now is the chance. Make sure you're tagging me. So here we go. Runa, the slide yeah. is up for you. Although I, I will just say one thing. Apples and almonds and pears can be bred together just as they are in fact all roses just just something to consider that i think the audience should consider but i'm not going to debate on that topic so as you brought up you you brought up your often mentioned and truck metaphor so you sometimes you often compare design to similar style trunks and point out that this suggests that we are clearly designed and based on the similarities we see to them and the intelligence that seems to apply. But does that re does is it the similarities that imply intelligence? To some extent, yes. When we are looking at, at the, a car or a truck, it does. Us. But it's actually because the designer is designing them for their environment or for the market and what works best but they're not traits of a specific designer. Specific designers are often instead marked by the flaws and unique traits of the designer. Even similarities are representative, can be, can be in fact representative of the fact that humans can only do so little. And that is what marks the individual designer because we copy and advance on other people's designs and socially evolve in that regard. And that is how design spreads and similarity spread. To this extent, based on your same analogy, we would more get a get a we would more likely expect a god that is flawed or is maliciously streaking off, or perhaps more like bubblegums, um, multi-designer god, gods who are both who have different goals in mind for a a Abrahamic God, we should expect each design to be unique and crafted perfectly for an, its environment with its similarities only related to its environment and not connecting over non-connected environments. Appreciate it, Rune. Um, Kat, over to you. Well, I think what we're seeing today 
you are a copy of the gene code of your parents and they are a copy of their parents and their friend goes back so you are a copy off of a copy off of a copy off of a copy off of a copy probably 250 generations back to adam in the evolutionist mindset you would go back millions of generations every time you have a copying process you introduce the possibility of mistakes and errors the fact that we can still breathe and talk at all is amazing, being a copy off a copy off a copy off a copy off a copy. So uh, the um, evidence, can you put his slide back up? There was something I wanted to say about that one. Can that possible, Donnie? There you go. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. He sometimes, uh, first paragraph, he sometimes compares design to similar style trucks and points out that the design, okay, I would say all of the vehicles designed by one particular engineer might have a lot of similarities. Doesn't the Tesla, how many different types of Tesla cars are there, Damien? At least six. I bet they have some similarities. Same guys designing them. Okay. That, that, yay. So I think that there are some similarities between all the different animals today, like many mammals have two arms and two, two feet, two legs, four. Or, so I, that's, that's, that's a good design. It works great. Um, and if there weren't some similarities in the, in the proteins, we could only eat each other. I think God designed it so there'd be a web of life where they're all working together, where the brown cow can eat the green grass and give the white milk. And I eat it and get the blonde hair. Okay? That's design. So I think there is overwhelming evidence for a designer behind all of this. If each animal was individually crafted to be completely separate, there would not be the web of life that nature... The nuts and bolts are designed to fit each other, even though in a nut and a bolt are ex opposites. So but they're designed to fit together. So I think we're designed to be able to interact with the animals and to eat some of them, and they're designed to interact with each other. There is a, a whole network of biology that works great because everything was designed for its environment just the way it is. So I don't think uh, the fact that you said we should see similarities between them, yeah, I think that does prove intelligent design. Uh, let's see, your fourth paragraph. Design itself is instead often marked by the flaws and unique traits of the designer. Well, in the case of you know, vehicles and machines, it might be. But I don't think there were any flaws or uh, design flaws in the original creation. But when you consider we're seeing a copy off a copy off a copy off a copy, yeah, there may be something has crept in, but they've all been negative. Where's the, where's the advancing information? Take a piece of paper and run it through the copy machine. There you go. Run this through a copy machine, and the copy will come out. Then take that copy and run it through the copy machine. Then take the copy of the copy of the copy and run it through the copy machine. After about 15 generations, I did this in one of my slides, you can hardly read it. So the fact that your gene code has been copied over and over and over from great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa is amazing that it works at all. So I, the, there's, there's no flaws and unique traits of the designer. The designer that designed me is a stunningly amazing. And everything, one single cell in your body, Runa, one cell in your body is more complex than the space shuttle. If you wish to believe that happened by chance, that's your choice. And you may have to claim you believe that to pass the test in biology class. I understand. But it's not science. It's a religious belief. There's overwhelming design that this lid right here Evidence, I think this lid was designed to fit this bottle. Ah, is there a flaw in the design? I don't know. I don't care. It works great. I'm going to use it. So 
I think your analogy is, is really stretching, looking for evidence. And tonight, the purpose of the debate was for you to give evidence for evolution. That wouldn't be evidence if there was a poor design. If something was designed poorly, that's not evidence nobody designed it. If a car has a poor design, it doesn't mean nobody designed it. It's an example of some idiot got involved and didn't do it right, okay? That, that's not proof nobody designed it. Okay, let's see, last paragraph. Based on the analogy given, we would expect to find a flawed God or multiple different gods. No, you're looking at it wrong. This is 6,000 years after the original creation, and man has messed it up. Plus, people themselves have done some pretty dumb things. If a guy's driving a car and he's drinking alcohol and he runs into a tree and crashes the car, do you look at the crashed car and blame it on Ford or General Motors? No, it's the idiot drinking that stuff that crashed the car. So if we have problems today in our health or something like that, it might be because we've been doing something wrong that the designer didn't want us to do. Maybe that's the reason. Anyway, go ahead. Kind of exactly, kind of exactly why we had class action lawsuits. But um, <laughs> actually, my point, my point was much more about the fact that um, that we should expect the the Abrahamic God to be perfect. I actually agreed with that premise. And actually, I agree, in fact, with the fact that, that um, design is not, that, that we are not perfect. Because we shouldn't expect perfect design in evolution. We should expect environment-affected design uh, in evolution that changes is different and retains some traits. And this is why actually even from your analogy, I'm a little confused because your analogy doesn't actually seem to be sufficient within your the context of your analogy itself. Like I said, Ed, obviously I don't believe in a poly a God, even though my last name means temple of Nord, Nord, Nord. But my, or a flawed god, or a malicious god, god. But uh, if we think about the fact that uh, life is clearly not cut and clean, so clean as to actually indicate that the designer of it was perfect and creating a first birth, that at least indicates that there would be multiple old designers or, or which would also account for viruses, by the way, okay? or some, so bubblegum, you can take that out as a good argument. Um, or that maybe God is trying to have his own agenda, or maybe it is. You know, maybe we were much more affected by the devil than we can for. But that also brings in its own interesting discussions. But you know, fair enough. Except, you know, I don't I don't expect to win. Appreciate it, Runa. Um, Dr. Hoven, any, anything you'd like to respond there before we uh, move on? Well, I don't know if it's my old age and hearing loss or the uh translation in verbiage, but I did not understand a thing he said in the last two sentences. Maybe you'd have to type it out where I can read it. Uh, it th no, there's only one God. Just by definition, there can't be more than one God. 
Uh, it can't be more than, you know, uh, one top dog, okay? So um, I think there's only one God. I think he not only designed the world, he wrote a book and told us how he did it. I think he preserved that book all through history. I have a copy right here. I'll send you one if you'd like. Uh, I think, I, I believe the Bible is God's preserved word down through history. And he said he did it all six days. I believe that. I think the scientific evidence points clearly to that. But tonight, you were supposed to give evidence for evolution. Is what you gave tonight sufficient to make you believe that a dog and an amoeba have a common ancestor? Go ahead. Runa, you, you can answer that. I just wanted to be able to talk with Kent Helvin, if I'm honest. Hey, talk anytime. 855-BIG-DINO, mission three. <laughs> I take calls all day long and half the night. So go ahead. Okay, well, I appreciate the uh, the respectful uh, back and forth discussion, Kent and Runa. I mean, uh, time has flown by. We can go a into a whole phylum discussion, you know, if you ever want to do it again. Yeah, and more animal-based uh, discussion. Yeah, we'd be hey, happy. Take a, uh, come take a tour. Come visit Dinosaur Adventureland. Take a tour. We'll have you live on our stage right here. Have another discussion. So I do have a legitimate question. Do I have to go to Pensacola to get to 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 your park because I'm because it seems like that on Florida. I mean on on Google Maps. Yeah, we're straight north of Pensacola, seventy miles. Lenox. That's what I thought. Town about that big. Well, gentlemen, I got to say that was a great discussion. Some uh, very interesting uh, questions that resulted in, in some good back and forth. So as we always do, though, let's kind of let, let's take a few minutes before we get into some of these audience questions to uh, kind of wrap up our thoughts, wrap up our points. Uh, we can consider it a concluding statement. So, Runa, since, uh, you know, evolution was on trial, why don't we let you uh, start a, a few minutes just to kind of wrap everything up? Okay. When it comes to evolution, I actually think that in the long run, um, we should actually think more about the fact uh, and discuss the fact that evolution doesn't just relate to the biological processes. It actually also relates to how physical processes manifest in biological processes. I didn't get to discuss on it as much as I should have would decide. So I briefly brought it up because I'm not very a good, good slide maker or right? because it was a long semester. But it is amazing how much physical processes do affect our biological processes. And beyond that, it's amazing what something, the fact that something like kale is related to broccoli and that is a kind, yet is it, why is an apple not the same kind as an almond? When we can both, in just like with kales, we know oh, that they can interbreed. In fact, protus yes, can't interbreed, but just, just like can't, both scientists and creationists often discuss them being similar. These are all questions that not just scientists, but creationists should be asking themselves, how are we viewing these things? And why are we viewing them as interconnected? 
And I don't think that's just beneficiary for an evolutionary perspective. I think even creationists, yes, can benefit and science when they pursue it. Even if they pursue it from a creationist perspective, if they're doing it with, from the scientific perspective. Runa, I appreciate your concluding thoughts and your concluding statement. Uh, Kent, let's hand it over to you. Let's say up to five minutes and whenever you're ready, go ahead. Well, I've used this illustration many times. I think intelligent people can locate clay in the earth. We have tons of it here at Dinosaur Adventureland. It's an old gravel pit. They can mine it and shape it into millions of things like pottery. I believe man has proven over the centuries he's able to take clay and make things out of it. Bricks, ceramic tile, pottery. The coffee cup made of clay taken from the ground, shaped by an intelligent mind. That does not mean the coffee cup can make itself. People can take the clay and make the coffee cup. Intelligent people can locate iron ore in the earth. We have tons of it here. They can smelt it down. We have iron ore on our property. Come on down, get some if you'd like. And they can make it into steel. I agree. They can then roll the steel or shape it or beat it or pound it or drill it or something or stamp it and make all kinds of parts out of it. I think intelligent people can make the steel and make a car. I agree. That does not prove the car can make itself from the iron. The iron ore can make itself into a car. God can take the dust of the ground, make it into a man. I believe that. That does not mean what Runa believed, that the dust of the ground made the man by itself. That is what you believe. Dust came to life somehow, somewhere, prebiotic soup or something, but the material turned into man by itself. If you're taking biology, Runa, the human body is mind-boggling in its complexity. The vascular system, skeletal system, digestive system, muscular system, reproductive system, integumentary system, the balance system. It's stunning in its complexity. One single cell of your body is more complex than the space shuttle. One cell. And you've got 100 trillion cells. Each cell has probably 100 trillion atoms. I don't understand how anybody with a college or with a kindergarten graduation certificate can believe it happened by chance. Every single system of the body is so complex, mind-boggling, and they work together. It's just stunning to me that a person of normal intelligence can somehow talk themselves into believing nobody made it. I don't understand. You'd have to go to college for years to be that brainwashed, I think. So anyway, thank you for the debate. Let's see why you asked, uh, why do we view them as interconnected? Well, I think the, pe the reason people view evolution as an answer to these questions is because they don't want God telling them what to do. They don't want God in their life. So they're looking for any way to explain life without God. That's the real reason. Go ahead. All right. Thank you, Dr. Dino, for that concluding statement. Uh, great debate, gentlemen, Runa and Kent. Okay. Well, we've got, as usual, a ton of questions here. So we will get through as many as we can before we hit the 90-minute mark. So, Runa, uh, this is your first time here on, on the channel, uh, although I'm sure you're familiar with the rules watching so many debates. Whoever, uh, whoever the question is for will make sure uh, gets the last word. So here we go. First question that comes in. And uh, what I'll do is put it up on screen. Uh, this one came in all the way at the beginning from Dustin Buck. Dustin, appreciate the question. So he says, question for Runa. Why don't we see evolution in the insects? The ones we find in amber are identical 
save for the size. So if evolution is true, why don't we see the missing link there? So oh, am I allowed to begin? So insects is a very loosely defined and category. And I think it often gets misdefined on what it is. And um, we do actually see heavy variation in anthropodia. Uh, uh, in, and not just in size, but actually even in how different glands are actually formed and like the presence of Malfigian tubules at different present ends. But as well, actually considering this isn't really a problem for evolution if if is a such a established niche that they have gotten themselves into, who, who because as that that would suggest that something about the way their physiology works is beneficial enough to to have minimal adaptation, have less less minimal adaptation. Okay, Runa, I appreciate the answer to that question. Uh, Kent, over to you for your response. Uh, we have here in our museum at Dinosaur Adventureland some fossil insects in amber, which is probably the best way to preserve them. It's tree sap. I believe during the flood of Noah, the water rushing back and forth and up and down and the earth being destroyed by a flood, the trees would snap, billions of them, and sap oozes out for X amount of days or weeks or months. Insects get trapped in that sap and they're preserved. Insects found in amber are plentiful. You can buy them probably by the thousands at some rock shows and stuff like that. And they are indeed identical to today, except sometimes they're bigger. Uh, I think that was indication the world was different before the flood came and everything probably got bigger and lived longer. So I think the question is good. We don't see any change. There's still mosquitoes in amber are still mosquitoes. Look at the movie Jurassic Park where they took the mosquito blood out. Uh, <clears throat> Supposedly, it's the same. Um, the insects preserved are classic example or evidence, I think, for rapid burial and a flood. Go ahead. I'd also point out they have an exoskeleton, which does benefit both light, light, which is another interesting niche to have when you're, no matter the size you have, especially in relation to how it affects bone density since it's an exoskeleton. Okay, to be fair, uh, Runa, that was your question. So we, we'll give you the last word there and we'll move on to the next one. So this comes in from Redefine Living. Thank you for the question, Redefine. Uh, question, I believe, is for you, Runa. So he says, because mutations are the driving force of evolution and it is mutations that caused these diseases, how do you reconcile this contradiction? Well because we're not the only people on earth. We're not the only entity on earth. Earth, earth. Viruses are also another entity. He, mutations themselves, it was a mutation and that was benefiting and how, how prions spread and, and changing how prions spread but it was also a mutation that was fixing it for and benefiting us 
like mutations have are are completely ambiguous in if they're going to help or harm or they're just a factor just like everything in life is a factor and like what what benefits donny here may not benefit me thank you runa and uh, over to you ken <clears throat> As I've said, all mutations observed have been harmful, fatal, or neutral. The one that he mentioned about the, uh, I'll do some more research on that, the prions, but it corrected a previous mistake of a mutation. It didn't create any new information. It's not gonna turn a mosquito or a, a, a bacteria into a whale. And they would need quadrillions of mutations that did that, and they struggle to find one they can stretch to fit their religion. They struggled hard to find one single mutation that they say, well, there's evidence. Well, come on, guys, it would take trillions, and it's not observed. Until you can prove it with a lot more than that, it should not be taught in schools. Evolution should be taught as a religion in private schools for those who wish to pay and come learn it. It's got nothing to do with education. It's got nothing to do with biology. There's no such thing as a fossil record. There's no such thing as a geologic column. The whole thing is baloney. Runa, you got brainwashed. I'm sorry. I'm here to help. Snap out of it. God made the world. Everything brings forth after its kind. No, ex no exceptions to that. Go ahead. Donnie, your hair is red, right? Part is that it. natural? Uh, I, no, think it, I think it's just the lighting, Runa. <laughs> I, I just wondered that. Because yeah. what would happen if we turned off the mutation that your hair was red? I'm sure you get a lot of ladies as a result of, of if you had red hair. That would make it beneficial to you. And if it spreads throughout the population, like it does in Ireland, it becomes beneficial in that regard. Uh, but different circumstances cause coal for different mutations. And yeah. I would say it is still hair. You're still attracting ladies, not mosquitoes or cows. <laughs> and you're still making baby humans. So it's not, it's not, that's not going to help evolution. Also, I have an inverse hair. 13th chromosome. Okay. And <laughs> you guys are keeping this fun and intellectual at the same time. So I appreciate it. Okay, this one comes in from That's Strange. And this one is for you, Kent Hoven. So he's asking, if all animals were herbivores, I guess at the time of creation, how do you explain some animals... And I assume he's referring to uh, carnivores. Well, uh, during World War II, they could not get meat for the zoos in London. And so the lions had to eat vegetation. They didn't like it at first, but they got used to it and they lived on it. I think the Bible clearly teaches certainly that all animals were vegetarian before the flood. After the flood, God said, Noah, now you can eat meat. You don't have to, but you can if you want to. And I think going from a plant-eating lion to a meat-eating lion is a pretty minor change comparing to go, compared to going from a rock to a lion or a bacteria to a lion. So the variations that change from herbivore to uh, carnivore are so minor compared to what the evolutionists believe that they change from a rock to a lion. I, th I find that stunning in stupidity that someone could believe such a thing. So if I'm... I go ahead. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I wanted you to finish up first. Well, and the burden of proof is not on me. The burden of proof is on them. Where's the evidence for evolution? Uh, this is a diversion from the, from the topic. 
So if, if I was demanding that everybody teach the Bible in the public schools at everybody's expense, well, then, yeah, I think I'd have to prove that scientifically. I think it's been demonstrated that nearly all meat-eating animals can live on vegetation if they'd like. I've got video footage of dogs here eating cabbage and eating broccoli. Uh, and, uh, yes, yeah, they can. Uh, there are some people who will say they're, they're one lady had a, a kennel of all dogs. All they ate was plants, all vegetarian dogs. I need to get that lady on our program here. But uh, that's not, it's not my burden of proof. God said everything was made to eat plants after the flood, maybe because of atmospheric differences or whatever the changes happened, uh, loss of a canopy. Now, meat is necessary for some, but they can make it on plants. Don't like it, but they can't. Go ahead. If I would actually throw something in Kent's favor, it is actually possible that a carnivorous animal can eventually become herbivorous over large periods of adaptation. But the thing we notice, especially in species like pandas, for example, is that this massively actually changes how they're able to behave because, the because cellulose digestion is heavily varied compared to Carn like meat eating. Because this is because cellulose takes much longer to digest than energy, I mean, than meat, meat does, does. And thus, in a carnivorous animal, this, this means that they have to slow their movement down um, and change a large amount of behaviors to adapt to that. So it, that means that we should expect a lot of the uh, pre-flood world to be, I mean, I mean, pre-garden world to be much more slow moving, do at least for the carnivores and actually all cellulose creatures to some extent compared to how they were afterwards. But it's not impossible. And uh, I appreciate that, Runa. Kent, question was originally for you, so we can give you the, the final response if there's anything you'd like to add. Uh, no, that's fine. Go ahead. Okay, let's see. All these questions we have, let me, uh, I guess, pick one at random here. Here's another one for, uh, for Kent. So we got a nice uh, healthy balance here of, of questions for Runa and Dr. Dino. So here we go. Question from Timothy. Timothy, question for Kent. If humans aren't apes, what is the difference or what are uh, some of the differences between an ape and a human? If you'd like to marry an ape, go ahead. <laughs> do you see anybody doing that? Hopefully not. No, no telling these days what people do. But uh, I think if you don't know the difference between a human and an ape, you need to ask a kindergartner to show you. They'll, tell, they'll point them out to you. Uh, there are thousands of anatomical differences, certainly mental differences, at least with some humans are smarter than apes. Uh, and so... I think that there's genetic differences. Apes, if I recall, have 48 chromosomes. We have 46. Uh, incapable of interbreeding. They were designed similar. Both got two arms, two eyes, that, you know, binocular vision, all that kind of stuff. They have a lot more hair on their body. Apes are not human. Humans are humans, and apes are apes. Orangutans are orangutans. Monkeys are monkeys. Chimpanzees, chimpanzees. They don't interbreed. They're designed to be what they are, and they bring forth after their kind every time. My brother, when I was growing up, had some uh, squirrel monkeys. They were squirrely and monkey. They weren't part squirrel, but they were crazy. And so I think uh, if humans, yes, humans are not apes. Uh, I, I speak for myself. I don't know about you. But uh, the, 
they you can believe whatever you'd like if you'd like to marry one or mate with one go for it <laughs> thank you kent runa over to you oh is is, is it for the same question because i can well, say it, something it, it's up to you typically yeah. what we do here uh, i know I, I know but actually there is something interesting with this theme because creationists can though though modern creationists don't necessarily acknowledge this connection to humans and apes. This hasn't always been true. We did see some, at least pseudo-creationists, although it gets complicated between what defines a creationist versus modern creationist versus historic creationists, such as Linnaeus did actually group apes and um, humans together and then cut out other species and Linnaeus himself actually commented this exact question yeah, yeah, that I cannot figure as much as I try, I cannot uh, tell the difference between an ape and a human. And that is an interesting poser. Of course, Linnaeus definitely had his own issues with how he classified humans in the first place. Yes. Um, but it does still bring up some interesting questions. Thank you for the uh, comments there, Runa. Kent, and anything you'd like to uh, add for a final response? Well, I, I would have to see the proof of that, that he crossed an ape and a human and got a baby. You might get him to mate. You could probably mate with a pine tree if you'd like. Uh, it's not going to produce a baby. So I think I'd like to see the proof that it produced a baby. Okay. Secondly, was the baby fertile? Because if it's not fertile, well, the definition of same species is produce fertile offspring. Uh, they've been able to crossbreed wolves and dogs, coyotes and dogs, coyotes and wolves. Uh, I did a bunch of research on that today. I got all my slides if I can find them here. So, yes, I think, here we go. Coyote-dog hybrid. Let's see. Uh, this, this might answer the question. Alt-DV-6-3 right here. Uh, a koi dog. Okay. Coyote-dog. Coyote, coyote Australian Shepherd mix. Ah, wolves in the eastern U.S. can mate with coyotes. Okay, wolf and coyote. So I think the dog, the wolf, and the coyote are the same kind of animal. There's 40 different subspecies of wolf. Mm. Wolves of the world. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Dehole or whatever. I should have looked it up. A canid native to Central, Southeast, and Southeast Asia. Other English names for the species are Asian wild dog, etc. And they can interbreed. Ah. So there's a, a genus called Canis, and they seem to be interfertile. That may be close to the biblical kind. I don't think God cares what we call the animals or how we classify them. But maybe uh, the Canis family is all interfertile and can produce viable offspring, coyote and gray wolf, 19 different species of coyotes. Um, whether the fox is in there or not, maybe not. Maybe that's a different, uh, let's see, a different uh, order. So maybe, I don't think God cares what our classification system is either. But I'll have a bunch of research done on this about the dingo, the coyote, and the jackal. All have 78 chromosomes, 39 pairs, and they can interbreed. Mm. So means they cannot interbreed. Foxes and coyotes cannot. Must be a different kind. 34 chromosomes. Well, let's see. The red fox has the same number of chromosomes as the sunflower and the, uh, and the artichoke. Therefore and the porcupine, therefore they must be interbreedable. Uh, humans have 46, 
So does this creature here. How do you pronounce that thing? Parha, whatever it is. It's, I don't think we're able to mate with those. So I think it's pretty obvious they bring forth after their kind. They can bring forth, they can bring forth, they can bring forth, they cannot bring forth, and they cannot bring forth, and they cannot bring forth. They bring forth after their kind. That's what the Bible says. And so did this human ape offspring, which you claim happened, did Linnaeus, was he able to get one that was fertile? Now I'm going to give the chance of that happening as zero. Go ahead. I think, I think that would be an ethical violation. Um, though there have been some who have suggested uh, testing, testing that. Um, so... Um, I don't think his job was breeding. So I'm going to say no, just out of thing. Although I did notice something. You earlier said that apples, you, you seem to suggest that apples were their own kind. But as I pointed out, strawberries can breed and pears and apples and almonds can breed together. Like, I don't know how kinds work with trees. I just... I, I... I guess what we yeah, could do, since that was Kent's question, we can let him answer that if he'd like to, and then we'll move on to... Uh, I, I would I like to I'll see evidence that strawberries and apples can breed. I'd like to see and, that. And, I, I and almonds. That. Almonds, you said, Runa? Oh, and almonds. Yeah, they're, ro and they're all, all rosier. I think strawberries may actually be slightly farther on the rosier. Yeah, I think it probably tastes good if you blended them together, but I'm, I'm going to doubt the breeding them together and producing viable offspring can the, the can they offspring interbreed because yeah, that's the pears and almonds can okay well i'm going to move on here to the final uh two questions we'll do so here we go bubblegum gun appreciate the support and uh question is for you runa so he asks and i'll just read it out here uh for fish to evolve to a bat he says needs 100 mutational change of the genome Evolution doesn't work because it would consist 100% of mutations and 100% mutations to the genome only get only gets you mega cancer is, is the last part of it. So go ahead. No. Is there anything you'd like to respond For, to? First of all, no, you wouldn't need 100% mutational change from fish to bat because of how many similarities there are. In, in actually fish and bat structures in the first place, um, in the sense that they're both tetrapods, they both have like basic uh, similar features in the sense of eyes, many parts of their, their like physiology eh? um, and basic features. You wouldn't need 100% of that. In fact, even in the most exaggerated model, you wouldn't need 100 percent of that even if i'm like assuming like just like the most like physical features we can we can see because we can even us as humans can see like general similarities is or like we won't get those weird uncanny valley effects um that i think all of us su suffer from um but actually even further beyond this is the fact that at, on your point on cancer, er, er, um, on mutations to the genomes, there is 
a bunch of mutations and then then and changes and a lot of those changes are changes that only in retrospect we notice lead lead to the modern day a organisms they're all distinct organs that work at that, that point but only in the retrospect can we see how they connect because they're actually just changes to fu this function and then it changes again to this function yeah. but they're still working within that system um, and that environment yeah. it wasn't going towards like a bat at 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 it was just trying to do what it can in the population to survive okay Thank you, Runa. Kent, anything you'd like to add there, brother? Nobody has ever in the history of the world seen a fish produce a non-fish baby or a bat produce a non-bat baby. If someone wishes to imagine it happened long ago and far away, that's not science. That's imagination, SpongeBob style. All we've ever seen in the history of the world is bats produce bats and fish produce fish. And we can divide them up into categories, specific kinds of bats or fish, okay? We got them all divided up. So it's imagination. And there would be so many, and I don't know about the number, 100% is what's offending him, maybe so, but I can tell you this. In the textbooks, they do show lines on paper between the fish and the birds and the mammals and the humans. They drew lines on paper connecting them, and the kid has to learn this for school. Kid, do you think the humans are related to a bat? That they're Sure, there's a line on paper right there. Here they've got the shark related to the jellyfish and the octopus and the spinach. Okay. Here they've got all the animals are related to all the plants. Now, if somebody wishes to believe this stupidity, they're welcome to believe whatever they want. This is America, the land of the fee and the home of the slave. But that's not science. It's a religion to believe that. It's not science. All science says bats produce bats without exception. We've now divided them into 1,100 species of bats. I don't think the bat cares. They probably look for something similar to their own kind. Uh, I think the fish probably look for another fish to mate with, not a bat. So I think evolution has got to be the dumbest religion in the world. There's been no evidence presented tonight to make anybody believe these trees of life. Why would I believe that a protozoa turned to a biology teacher? Because of a mutation in a folded protein? Is that make me supposed to believe this chart? I, I resent them teaching that in schools. I think we should we should get it out. Okay. Go Thank ahead. you. Uh, thanks, Kent. And, and Runa, real quick, final word. We got one last question. We're gonna what is, so, sorry, I keep interrupting. It's hard okay. to tell timing question. sometimes. But what is a bat act? Just like with kinds. And, you know, what, where does as what it is and 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 did we name those things that i guess biblically we are supposed to but would adam have actually be said would adam still say that this was was this if it kept going like this or would did he have some knowledge that was specific and if it becomes distinct enough, does it stop being that? If it mutates enough, and 
even if you don't believe that it is like that, if mutations can exist and hybridization events are still going, and we assume your kind model is a real thing, can evolution occur now? And is, will it eventually occur that kinds will be distinct enough to actually be evolved from where they are? Runa, thanks for the last word. And here we go. Final question. As always, we've got 100 questions that come in. So I do want to thank the audience for being so engaged in this 2022 Evolution Debate Challenge Series. I think we are close now to 30 of them. I've got most of them up on the website, sandfortruthministries.com. So if you're a new subscriber, but you love these debates, make sure to check out that section on the website. Okay, final question comes in. Uh, final question we're going to get to that is comes in from Vans at 182 Workshop. Uh, question for Runa. Can you explain the petrified trees oh, and fossilized animals going through the layers of the geologic column? Sounds like one of your favorite topics already, Runa. So go ahead. Well, first of all, I'm not a geologist, but um, like <laughs> I've even seen creation. It's not like this topic. Because um, it actually, depending on your views on creationism, causes different problems. But to talk about it. Um, basically, the reality is, as I kind of alluded to, different places on the earth do in fact have, have different like ways that they ended up forming due to the mechanisms of, of the geological nature of planetary for, formation, and as well the ongoing mechanisms that we see going on through the planet and then that constantly he causes is things from happening yeah. um, when it comes to petrified trees is it depends on if they were actually petrified right? and actually truly fossilized right? or if they were basically in a petrified state it looks petrified uh, to us, but is really more of a basically the equivalent of mud put on it and then like kind of wrapped around it and then briefly pressured pressured over time, over a much shorter time, but not actually ever occurring a true fossilization. Um, as well with fossilized animals going through it, that's much more about the mechanics of, of like different areas and the fact that it can sometimes lead to like the pushing up of like different, different fossils or depending on how the sediments are, like different like mechanisms but we also notice and this is why we actually look at where where actually is this located and, and the type of disruption that is evident actually around the fossilized animals not just the layering but like the disruption around it that's a bad explanation but still Okay, Runa, thank you for answering that question. Uh, we'll hand it over to uh, Dr. Dino. 
for his response. Um, hundreds, maybe even thousands, but certainly hundreds of petrified trees have been found standing up and they're not coated with rock. They are petrified. They're solid rock to the middle. This one at the Kettle Mine up in Cookville, Tennessee, you can go see it for yourself, runs through two different coal seams. Um, they're layers of solid rock. They are petrified. Joggins, Nova Scotia is famous for its hundreds and hundreds of petrified trees running through different layers. They are turned to stone like any other petrification process. We've got this one here in our museum running through 12 layers of slate. Okay, This one, petrified, standing up. Here's the one with a fish. The nose is in a layer of rock, supposedly million year, millions of years older than the rest of the body. So it had to balance on its nose for millions of years. Polystrata fossils are found all over the world. Here's a bunch of them in France. Textbook of geology, Charles Schubert, uh, shows the petrified tree, a drawing. Sometimes the trees are upside down, petrified, running through these layers. I don't think the evolutionist answer is common sense at all. It's much more simple to say, guys, the layers can form quickly. The flood of Noah probably made all the layers in one year, burying bazillions of trees. Mount St. Helens blew up 1980. It blew thousands of trees, estimates are 20,000 trees, into Spirit Lake. Many are still floating there today, 40 years later. But hundreds of them, maybe thousands, have sunk to the bottom. And some are standing up in the bottom as if they grew there, but none of them grew there. They got ripped out, blown in by the volcano, floated, got waterlogged, sank to the bottom. They're going to stand there, and as the sediments form around them, they could petrify in the standing position, running through all the layers. So I think it's just simply not common sense to say the layers are different ages when you have one tree connecting all of them. And, and the petrification, we know petrification can take place in, in, in weeks in a laboratory under heat and pressure. You can completely petrify a fossil, turn something into a fossil. They can make coal in 20 minutes in the laboratory. So I think, uh, I think Runa is desperate, like the Bible says in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, they do not want to believe in the creation or the flood. They're willingly ignorant. The flood is the only logical explanation for the polystrate of fossils. Thank you for the question. I believe, especially upside down trees, uh, the layers formed in one year. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you for the response. Uh, Runa, quick final word, and then we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, just then you get the distribution the problem of distribution of those sediments in the in the first place, which is what actually why I talked about the first thing. Um, but no, I don't deserve a final comment. Other than that, it's just been a great, great time um, to just have some fun. You know, but, but I see your comment and, you know, Honestly, you know, even with all, all the insulting, you know, I feel like I got less insults than some other people all got. So that's a good day. <laughs> that's good. And, and I always encourage the chat, please uh, do not attack the debaters, the live chat that is. We always get a ton of people in here. Keep it respectful and atta attack arguments, not people. So Runa, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it was it was a very uh, easy debate to moderate. So I appreciate you both giving me an easy job tonight. I appreciate those final words, Runa. I, I also thank you for doing this. It's an, an important topic and you got a challenge here. So any other evolutionist that wants to take the challenge, let me know. Uh, Dr. Hoven, we'll hand it over to you, brother, for your final words. 
No, I believe the Bible is true. God made everything in six days. There was a flood that destroyed everything. He's going to come destroy it again. And you better get ready. This is his world. He can wreck it if he wants. The Bible teaches all kinds of things about the end times. I wrote a book on that subject of what does the Bible teach of what on earth is about to happen. Runa, you're going to die one day. I hope it's a long time from now, but it's going to happen. Could happen tomorrow. Have you seen the way they drive in this country? Where are you going? What happens when you, are you sure nothing happens? You just rot in the grave. Are you sure? Stop and think about that. Call me, 855-BIG-DINO, extension 3. Be glad to talk to you about it. Okay? That's I it. literally Ed? die every day. I literally have a high chance of dying every day from epilepsy, you know, present better evidence for, for the flood. And, you know, you might have a chance to save me, you know, well, before I die and have a suit up. One eight five five big dino. I'm sure uh, Dr. Oven will love to leave you, lead you to the Lord, Runa. So mm -hmm. uh, Kent, Runa, appreciate it. Uh, we're going to let you guys get out of here. I appreciate your time. Uh, that you've given to us for these debates. So, Kat, Runa, I'm going to let you both out of here. I'm going to stick around for a little bit just to go over some reminders for the audience in terms of the uh, upcoming debates we have in this Evolution Debate Challenge series. So to the audience, we'll see you in about 10 seconds. And Kent and Runa, you both have a fantastic night. Thank God you, brother. All right. Looks like it is just uh, myself here and another uh, fantastic debate in the 2022 Evolution Debate Challenge series. Um, I love everybody's feedback. You guys are the life and blood of this channel. So uh, what do people think of, of the new format we're doing rather than long opening statements and rebuttals? Uh, what we've been doing over the last several debates is more of a free flowing uh, discussion, you know, lay out an argument and uh, the debaters can take as long as they want really to lay out an argument and then we deal with that one single argument uh, argument we engage it in in respectful discussion so uh, i'd love everybody's feedback i'm having a ton of fun with this uh, evolution debate challenge series it's it's been uh very fruitful i mean as i pointed out i think we're close to 30 of these now uh including a few of us from standing for truth ministries like uh, matt professor david mcqueen and myself, we've gotten in on this as well. And we've taken the challenge. Just I think last month is where I debated snake was right on endogenous retroviruses. So that was a lot of fun. Anyways, here is a few reminders. So coming up, we've got uh, the much anticipated showdown atheist junior Dr. Dino evolution is on trial for uh, the debate question or thesis, I guess you could say, is there reasonable evidence for evolution? That's June 22nd. Uh, June 14th, this one's going to be an earlier debate due to uh, time zone differences, but we managed to get it set and get it scheduled. So Nick from Planner Walk and of course, Kent, Evolution on Trial. Uh, this one's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm really pumped for this one. This one's gonna be at one EST. And that'll be on the 14th. Fox Official and Dr. Dino. This one is, I believe, June 7th. Fox Official was in the live chat tonight. Thank you for being here. And uh, this one, if I am correct, this is just a snapshot of all the overall debates and events we do have on the channel. June 7th. 
So if you're not yet subscribed, you love debates of all kinds, make sure you are hitting that subscribe button. We've got some soteriology-related debates coming up as well. June 2nd, C.J. Cox and David Preston were the Israelites saved by faith and works under the OT. And the big one that we've had scheduled for three or four months now, uh, the big soteriology debate, does the Bible teach salvation by faith alone or faith plus works? Robert Wilkin, Robert Sengenis, two powerhouses in the world of soteriology. And uh, this will be one of the biggest theology slash soteriology debates out there. So I am pumped for this one. This one is June 9th. Uh, June 9th. We've also got another one scheduled. I don't have the image here to show you just yet. This is just a snapshot again of the overall events we have scheduled. So make sure you are subscribed and uh, notified. We got another one coming up between uh, Joshua Gibbs and Francis Turretin, both seasoned debaters. That's one on uh, free grace and lordship. That's going to be at the end of the month as well. Um, actually, no, just a, a few days after this one, I believe on the 11th. So we'll have a couple uh, big debates on soteriology all within a, a few days. Also, I wanted to let everybody know or remind everybody that uh, the Endogenous Retrovirus Handbook is available. And uh, it is a blessing that so many people are benefiting from it. You know, we've got a ton of people picking it up. And also, one thing I wanted to say is we've had a lot of people buying them in bulk. So just last week, we kind of had, I guess you could call a sale where um, we had it priced at printing cost. Five bucks is, is printing cost generally. So we had it uh, priced there on Amazon and I bought it. I bought them in bulk, you know, handed out to friends, family, church members. And we had other people as well do the same. Uh, we had people buying 10 or more copies. And uh, it's a great way to, to hand them out to, as I said, friends, family. Church members, you know, it is really the number one line of evidence that a lot of the evolutionists are using these days, ERVs. So this book is comprehensive in content and covers pretty well um, black and white version, colored version, every single argument pertaining to uh, ERVs. And it also provides a superior model to the common descent model. So uh, please pick that up. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is uh, starting... Tonight sometime, sometime after midnight. So if you guys want to have a lookout for it, we are going to be doing another 48 hours where you can pick up the book at, at cost. So I think depending on, on where you are, Canada, the States, the UK, it's, it's about $5 a piece. And uh, I'm also going to be buying bulk again because uh, these kinds of books you can really pass out uh, quick. They're important. And uh, so what I do want to do, actually, before I shut it down here, is get the link for everybody. Uh, again, the it's in review, so it should be sometime after midnight. And we're going to keep it that way for, as I said, about 48 hours where you can, you can pick it up at cost. And that's for those who have um, been encouraged and have appreciated the opportunity to to buy them in bulk. I understand it's 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 difficult to buy them in bulk when it's at full price. So uh, there we go in in the live chat, and um, I put out a Patreon post as well regarding a, a sneak peek into a rebuttal that that I'm writing to a PhD virologist Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal who uh, gave a review 
um, both in video form and written form over Twitter. The written form was was rather comprehensive, so I am dealing with that, and we'll be putting out probably a little uh, like pamphlet kind of handbook as well, responding to it. Um, and that's a ton of fun. It's a good sign for the ERV handbook because absolutely none of the challenges that I put forth in the book were were uh, addressed. And this is from a PhD virologist. So again, it's, it's a great time to be a biblical creationist. So last thing I do want to say that's on my mind again is uh, the Evolution Debate Challenge series. So if you're interested in uh, taking the challenge, we got a ton of uh, debate scheduled already and we're looking to schedule more. You know, we're doing this full time. And so uh, shoot me an email, check standingfortruthministries.com. Just click the contact button and we would be happy to uh, look into who you are and, and set you up in, in a debate. So I did also want to thank a couple of the final super chats that came in. Uh, one from Bonnie Moore, a hundred dollar super chat. God bless you. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, you are the you guys are the life and blood of this channel. You're the reason why uh, we at Standing for Truth Ministries can do this full time and also put out full time content for you. So appreciate that. And uh, Super Chat came in also from Rock Roll, $10 Super Chat. So thank you so much. And thank you. Um, thank you, everybody, for, for your support and Super Chats. Just kind of looking at the, the, the live chat here. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for always being so engaged in this, in this topic and in these debates. I really look forward to the audience Q&As for the debate that we host because... Uh, the fun's just getting started. Once the debate itself is over, the concluding statements, the debate continues into the audience Q&A because you guys are awesome. You guys uh, put forth some really, really awesome questions for us, um, the debaters, to engage. Um, all right, that's about it, guys. We will see you. I believe our next debate is on the 31st. And uh, then we are getting into June and June is packed. The first half of June, we've got a ton of events for you. And also uh, Matt and I need to squeeze in uh, some of those dates. Hopefully we've got some response videos we want to make to uh, some videos that, that were put out against some of our material. So again, thank you so much for tuning in and uh, God bless. Standing for Truth is out.